Hello and welcome to the Scrimba podcast. My name is Alex and on this weekly show, I speak with successful developers about their advice on learning to code and getting your first junior developer job. Today, I'm joined by the energetic and wise Danny Thompson. I learned of Danny about a year ago because they were always, always, always trending on Twitter, sharing solid advice for new programmers after his experience breaking into tech with no degree after frying chicken at a gas station for a decade. I remember going into interviews and my brain would literally be screaming at me, get out of here. You don't belong here. They don't want to talk to you. This interview room now smells like chicken because of you. They don't like you. They don't need you. They want someone with higher capabilities. They want someone that comes from a degree background. That is how Danny got started, but in the years since, he has become a fountain of measured, actionable, and inspiring advice for anyone learning to code and trying to break into tech, no matter who you are or where you're from. You know the show 90 Day Fiance? They can't even get a fiance in 90 days. You're gonna come over here and get a brand new six-figure career in 90 days? Give yourself the permission to take your time. I am excited to bring you more of that in this episode. And remember to stay tuned to the end because I throw Danny some fun, quick fire questions. Let's get into it. Sometimes what we see on Twitter isn't always the reflection of what you should be working on if your goal is to become a junior developer, something that I know you're very passionate about and talk about a lot. I often say that follower count is not a direct representation of genius in a subject. A follower count is actually a direct representation of how much you run your mouth. It just so happens I run my mouth a little bit more than the average, so people hit the follow button a little bit more frequently on my profile compared to a few others. But I've met some absolute geniuses that have 300 followers, and I've met some people that literally make my eyes roll that have half a million followers. Your follower count doesn't mean that you should be guiding the masses. Um, It just means that Sometimes you share some ideas or some memes or some posts that people really resonate with. But what I will say is don't allow someone outside of your local market to give you advice focused on your local market. For example, I'm in Memphis, Tennessee right now. I have no way to know what the market is in London or or Ireland or anywhere else to give very specific advice. And so a lot of people on Twitter, they kind of share this very specific advice applying to them, but it doesn't apply to the global market because it's completely different. Like where I am in Memphis, Tennessee, C-sharp.net is the biggest tech that you can have to land a job in tech here. That's not the case for every single state or, or city in the country. For example, some areas, Python is king. Some areas like Washington, D.C., Ruby is king. Right. That's why I always say, especially if you let some random cartoon character image dictate your life decisions, I think that's a very like dangerous way to go about selecting things. Even with me, I try very, very hard to ensure that I don't give bad advice. I do a lot of research, but I don't always get it right. So I know if I'm not getting it right, I know other people aren't getting it right. And if they're not getting it right, that means they're not doing the due diligence to let people know on the front end, like, hey, this could apply to you. This may not apply to you. Do that research. So even if you get advice from me, even if something on this podcast that we talk about today is like really sparking an idea for you, let it spark that idea. Do your research and see if it applies to you. I happen to know in your last role, you were very focused on community, helping with conferences and things like that, whereas this new role seems to be all about building software. Was that a conscious decision for you? Since I know that both things are actually very important to you and things about which you're passionate. My last role was in developer ecosystems and developer relations in DevRel. Essentially, what we would do is from the teams that were creating the languages all the way to individuals utilizing them, 
we worried about the entire life cycle of that language. I was really focused on helping people get learning resources and hands-on workshops and making sure that people were able to learn what they needed to know to really utilize that language and especially bringing like really valuable speakers. One thing that I kind of noticed with that job was we did a lot of community work and I love community work, but I was starting to kind of move away from the community work that I really, really enjoyed the most where it's helping beginners or helping people learn how to code in the beginning, as opposed to helping developers with 15 years experience working at XYZ company, right? I loved helping them, but I want to help all cycles of developers. I wasn't able to really focus on the technologies that I enjoyed. For like the last six months of my life, I was supporting Android technologies and I really liked the people I was meeting, but Android isn't really necessarily something that I'm super, super passionate about. Uh, I really loved web development. I love React and Angular and and utilizing Golang or, or Java I wasn't necessarily able to do that in the last role, although I did get to learn Kotlin. I did get to learn uh, a lot more stuff in Java, but mainly in the mobile developer side of things. And so I said, okay, I want to kind of get back to the technologies that I enjoy the most. And the one thing that I noticed about DevRel is you're talking a lot. (laughs) Like you're meeting people, you're talking to a lot of people. There's not much that you can do outside of that. And so I said, okay, I need to go ahead and get to a point where I can focus on the technologies that I want to focus on. And then whatever community efforts that I want to do, it's really focused on the things that I want to be a part of. Essentially, with this new role, I'm going back as a Golang React developer for a company called Frontdoor, an amazing company. I get to work on a phenomenal team with great individuals. And traditionally, that's like a big focus of what I look at when deciding on a company that I want to work for, getting to work on products that I really want to work on and get to work on initiatives and things like that that I'm really focused on. So definitely looking forward for that. But the biggest thing of all is I get to work with technologies that I really want to work with. And I want to get better at microservices and and backend technologies and Golang is a great way for me to do that. Excuse me if I'm misremembering, but did you work at Front Door before? Yep. When I was uh, leaving my last role, I, I interviewed with several companies and I had uh, several like really aggressive offers, but Front Door really came with an offer that I couldn't turn down. And the biggest point of all was I truly loved the team that I was with. And the individuals that I get to work with on a daily basis are what make a job for me. A job is a job. Like you're going to provide value. You're going to do what you need to do. But when you get to work with people that you actually like and you get to work with people that make it worth all that effort of the late deployments or trying to hit a time crunch and they're great individuals, it makes that journey all worth it for me. I'll tell you what, man, like we sort of look at a lot of new developers, LinkedIn profiles, and people have questions around how to prioritize things, how to position themselves. It's very rare, but also incredibly encouraging to see on somebody's LinkedIn profile that they worked at a company, they went on to work at another awesome company, and then they liked working with them so much, they hated to see them go, and now they're welcome back. I don't think you could ask for anything more on a LinkedIn profile. That's very cool. That was one thing that I really was appreciative of. Anytime I go into a role, I always try to provide as much value as I can. It was a really awesome feeling when I was able to not just provide value, but when they found out that I was looking for an opportunity, they came right away. We had a great conversation and discussion. I had actually given my notice without another role lined up. So for them to really scoop in and the hiring process was incredibly fast because they already knew what I was able to do. And I left everything on really good terms. And that's kind of one thing that I always say, when you burn a bridge, you can never cross over it again. But if you leave that bridge intact, you never 
know when you want to meet mutually on one side or the other and for them to be receptive of that. And that's another thing, too, when I tell people about creating some kind of presence online. This time when I was interviewing around, it was one of the first times that I heard from several individuals. Like before I interviewed a candidate, I've never heard so much about them from multiple individuals. And so I was going into all these interviews where they had already heard about me or or someone told them about me before they even met me. And I thought that was a great testament of why people should be sharing content online, not just in the aspect of writing a random blog post to write it or And I see this very frequently being a high school kid and you're sharing career tips. I don't think you need to do that. What I think people need to be sharing is the most authentic version of themselves and how they approach problems. And when you do that, people will connect with that. And if they connect with that, that connection being authentic and real will provide more opportunities for you down the road. People love to be a Xerox copy of somebody else. Instead, you really should focus most on who you really are. And if you can create a post and create a tweet or create a LinkedIn post or create a blog, but it's really about what you're learning, a problem that you solved and how you approached it or something along those lines, that I think is going to produce way more value for you than anything else that you could ever copy of somebody else's. One of the biggest factors to people even following me on on social media, it hasn't been because I take great photos and I post like witty comments. It's they feel like they're truly connecting with me because everything that I post is authentically real. And I don't always say the most coolest thing in the world to say to get the most likes. I don't care about likes because at the end of the day, I've had posts get 20,000 likes. I've had posts get 10,000 likes. My dinner tasted the same. My family stayed the same. My clothes looked the same. None, None of that changes. So what matters most is if you're connecting with somebody, it's authentic because if it's authentic, they'll stay with you. They'll ride with you. They'll really care about you at the end of the day, as opposed to you just being somebody that they toss to the side. So just focus on being the most authentic version of yourself. And I guarantee you more fruitful opportunities will head their way towards you. This is the exact same thing that I did when I had zero followers, zero connections. To be completely honest, for over 10 years of my life, I was working in gas stations. And I realized that LinkedIn was a place where I could actually get into contact with all these hiring managers and recruiters and the actual decision makers for roles. I was terrified, like literally mortified, terrified of reaching out to these individuals. And I realized something in that moment. The chances of these individuals, these hiring managers, these recruiters that work at these big Fortune 500 companies, right? The chances of them ever walking in my gas station are literally zero. So the only way that they'll ever know that I even exist is if I reach out to them because they'll never know who Danny Thompson is. They'll have no reason to know who Danny Thompson is. And so I started reaching out to hiring managers and recruiters. I'd start DMing them. I'd start commenting on their posts. I'd start looking at like a lot of their content. And in the beginning, they're like, who the hell is this Danny guy? And now they're like, oh, I love Danny. I knew Danny from the beginning. Danny's the best. But it never would have happened if I didn't start creating a network. And one thing that I ended up doing with that network is after creating many opportunities for others and myself, I started creating pipelines. When somebody would approach me with a role, I'd be like, hey, really, really happy that you approached me with this. 
I'm not interested. But before you walk away, I have somebody that I think would be a perfect fit for you. Let me make that introduction. Obviously, if you already like me, you're going to like my judgment and who I could possibly send that way. With a lot of these hiring managers, a lot of my focus was, I want to show you that you can find mid-level developers or junior developers that can fill the roles for positions that you were looking for that were slightly higher. If you were looking for a senior, let me introduce you to a mid-level developer. Mm -hmm. If you're looking for a mid-level developer, let me introduce you to a junior that really knows their stuff. And what ended up happening was we started seeing companies that never hired juniors start taking these opportunities, start hiring. And one thing that I've even told to several hiring managers is if you have five senior developers, there's no reason why you can't have one junior joining that because you could spread that workload across those five and it wouldn't really seem like a lot to them, but it creates that pipeline of junior developers for you that number one, you can get at a cheaper rate. But number two, instead of trying to break bad habits out of a senior developer with 10 years of experience, you can create the junior developer habits that will be a senior in three years, saving you a massive fraction of the money and you get exactly what you want out of it. And I'm not saying like, oh, we've got a million junior developers that we're hiring now like because of this. No, no, no. But where there was zero opportunities, maybe there's one now. Where there were two opportunities, maybe there's four. So it hasn't been like life-changing, monumental differences, but we've started getting people in the door. And I think that's what matters the most. Even for me with Front Door, I'm like one of the first few people that they ever hired that didn't have a come from a degree background, right? Nice. And they liked me so much that they brought me back. Like I provided that value. And I think that's crucial that if you actually do get these opportunities, opportunities, you don't just get it and survive, but you last and thrive. If you get in there and a hiring manager is willing to take a chance on you, invest his time in you, it's now your duty to rise to the occasion. You're opening the door for people to follow behind you and you're leaving that impression with that hiring manager that I can take chances and opportunities on juniors. I can take opportunities on developers that may not be a senior developer for five, 10 years of experience. And I think this is something that a lot of juniors need to keep in their mindset that regardless of where you are in your career, where you are in your journey, what you know in your tech stack, you bring value. But the thing that needs to change in the expectation of a junior developer trying to enter the industry is coding is not the most important thing you can do. It's the least important thing you can do. They're not hiring coders. They're hiring problem solvers. You need to be able to look at a problem, break it down to a lower level and solve that problem. The code is just the tool that you utilize to give your solution to that problem. Mm. And a lot of people, they come with this mindset. I know what state is. I know what a prop is. I know I know what an array is. Where are these jobs at? And I know for a lot of people that, you know, bootcamp advertisements, they get to them, hey, 90 days to make six figures in tech, like 90 days. You know that show 90 Day Fiance? They can't even get a fiance in 90 days. You're going to come over here and get a brand new six-figure career in 90 days? Give yourself the permission to take your time. If you are enjoying this episode of the Scrimba podcast, please do us at Scrimba a favor and share it with your friends on social media or in your community. Word of mouth is the single best way to support a podcast that you like. So thanks in advance. Back to the interview with Danny. I do think there is sometimes a bit of a disconnect between reality and social media 
which can be everybody's sort of highlight reel. There's always going to be an outlier who did get a job after 90 days. What they don't tell you is that they started coding when they were 12, maybe dabbled with code every year for 10 years, and then just happened to do the last mile and get a job and attribute it to the boot camp. But I like what you said at the beginning about sort of looking at your local job market and the sort of opportunities around you. Just on that topic, I think the game has changed a little bit. What do you do now? So many junior jobs are remote. Like, you still look at the local area or do you maybe expand your horizons a little bit? Let me preface this by saying, you know, my following and the people that I talk with, it's completely international, right? So when I say local market, number one, I am definitely referencing your local area, like the area around you and maybe you're like your nearest biggest city. But I'm also referencing a lot of people, for example, in Asia and Africa, they say, well, only opportunities that exist for us is in the West. So they're desperately trying to get jobs in America, London, Ireland, et cetera, or you know, even in China. And I try to tell them that there are problems that can be solved in the West, but there's also problems that can be solved in your local area. And Jimmy's insurance company down the street is always hiring, right? And they have problems that they need to solve. The problem is people often disregard their local area and they're looking for these big tech hub cities. When you are in your area around you, your competition is going to be way less. I'm in Memphis, Tennessee. If I start trying to get jobs in New York and California, I have all the Californians there, but I also have all the people that are trying to get remote jobs in that city as well. My competition and all the possible candidates that are going for this opportunity increases exponentially. Where if I'm in Memphis, Tennessee looking for a job, maybe I'm going up against 10, 15, 20 developers. Whereas if I'm going against the global market, maybe there's thousands upon thousands of developers applying to the exact same job. Hiring managers for the vast majority, they definitely want to hire people that are within their city, right? They want local talent. If you can fill that void, I think that's huge. But if remote is your option, I'm going to be honest, in my opinion, becoming a junior developer in a completely remote position far outside of your state, city, country, it's significantly harder than if you were to become a junior developer where it's local to you. For a lot of these companies, they've created a workforce that can work online, but they don't necessarily have the systems in place to take a complete beginner and mold them into the junior developer that they're looking for. Mm. Whereas in person, they have those systems. There are so many people who are breaking into tech from other industries. And one thing I know you believe is that you can always sort of parlay or transfer your experience or knowledge into that new job. But where the difficulty comes in is like, how? You know, maybe in your specific case, working as a fry cook, like how do you sort of take those skills and package them up and tell an employer, these are the things I'm bringing with me? That's like the most common thing I hear. All these jobs, they want five years of experience for a junior developer now. It's crazy. And I agree, like I've seen the job ads, like junior developer, two years experience, how are they going to have two years of experience for an entry-level position, right? And one person kind of said one thing that kind of stuck with me, entry-level doesn't necessarily mean entry-level as in entering the field for the first time. It could be entry-level to get into that company. Fang companies are a great example, right? Google, Facebook, they start hiring their developers at level three positions. So they're not necessarily saying, we want junior developers with zero experience. We want you to already be seasoned when you come into this place. And this is like the biggest advice that I could ever give you when it comes to jobs that are looking for experience. Apply. Simple as that. Apply. Do you know the main languages that they're looking for? Apply. Do you know 50% of the requirements that they're listing? Apply. Worst case scenario, they say, no, you're in the exact same position you were before, right? Nothing's changed. Best case scenario, they say yes. Or at the very least, 
you get an opportunity to show them how valuable you really are. No company in the history of the world has ever turned down a surefire bet to make money. Now, when it comes to showcasing your past experience, don't go in there saying, I was a cashier. If you're a cashier, don't start telling me, I ring up customers on a register. You know, I bagged up groceries. I know you did that. I'd be more shocked if you didn't. If you told me you had a calculator on the side, like that would be crazy of a, a story, right? Give me the quantifiable win. You shown someone, somewhere, something that you were good at that job. What was it? You were at that job for two years. It wasn't that you just showed up to work on time. You showed something else that kept you there, that got you that raise. Did you increase impulse purchases at the point of counter? Did you go ahead and increase customer satisfaction, the purchase of sales? Did you increase the ability for customers to walk out with more product? Did you reduce spoilage? Like, Talk about these wins and add a number to it. Don't just say you increased revenue. Nobody knows what that means. Is that a dollar? Is it $10,000? Is it a million? But if you were to say, I was able to increase revenue by 3% year over year by creating more impulse purchases, which resulted in my boss loving me and giving me XYZ, right? The other thing that I try to tell people all the time when it comes to your resume, LinkedIn, et cetera, it is not your autobiography. Your interview is your autobiography. Your resume, your LinkedIn, these are your hooks. You need to construct it in a way to where like, this is really interesting. I need more information. Let me call Danny. Let me go further with this. So many times do I see people where they're adding paragraphs to each bullet point. You need a line max to saying, I did X, Y, Z. This was the thing. So one tip that I'll give you, keep a small book by your desk, by your table, wherever. And at the end of the day, just jot something down. Small wins are still wins. But the Mm. problem is when it comes time where we're trying to write everything down, we forget. We forget about all those times where the boss is like, hey, you really did it today. Great job. So proud of you. We forget about those small moments. And so when it's time to like really construct this stuff, we're like racking our brain for something and we lose track of that. Having that little notebook, you can write things down throughout the year. And guess what? I guarantee at the end of the year, you're going to have 15, 20 wins in there that you forgot about. I really want to sort of challenge you a little bit on a couple of those points, if that's okay. Just from the perspective of people who maybe I've even shared the same advice. You know, I say, what's the worst they can say? They're going to say no, and you're in the same position. They're like, well, well, actually, Alex, I feel like my self-confidence is going to be really bad after that. I think it's going to be a major setback to me. Here's the thing. I think there's nothing more powerful than getting a no and then realizing you didn't break. I think for a lot of us, we think that we're fragile when in reality we're not. And sometimes testing the fragility of our being is one of the best things that we could do. If you're an interview and you realize, man, this interview is just terrible. Like it's not going the way that I want. Bomb it with style. You will walk out feeling like a million bucks knowing I knew that was not going to go the way that I wanted, but I took control of it. I said everything that I wanted to say. It went fantastic. I guarantee you, you're going to walk away feeling way more profound and way more comfortable with yourself. If one person tells you no, it's not the end of the world. There's 7 billion people on this planet. I just need one of them to fall in love with me, see what I bring to the table and give me the opportunity in my lifetime. One says no, I'm on to the next one. You don't like everybody on this planet. I don't like everybody on this planet. There's some people that I genuinely love. I appreciate. I try to support. And there's some people that I avoid because I just don't like who they are with their natures. Jobs are the exact same way. Everything that I'm saying right now is like constant trial, error, failing, getting back up. I love failure. This is the same mindset that I had before, because if I didn't fail, if I didn't push that idea, or if I didn't push that constant a little bit further, am I leaving anything on the table? Am I underselling myself? Am I even bringing enough value for this conversation? 
I guarantee you, if you fail and you bring yourself back up from that opportunity, you'll find yourself, number one, being able to learn from that experience and bring more. But number two, you'll be able to bring the necessary skill set that an employer is looking for. And I think that is crucial because oftentimes we do the bare minimum hoping for the highest rewards. I get asked, Danny, what's the least I need to know to get a job? Why aren't we looking at what's past that? Why aren't we looking at how much more can I do to make sure that I'm not just getting a job, but I'm getting the opportunity that I needed to help me reach that next level? Here's the thing. In development, there's no shortage of bodies to perform tasks. There's a shortage of very skilled developers to solve problems. Problem solvers are not the ones just getting the jobs. They're the ones growing careers. Don't just say, I've learned how to code in React or I learned Angular. I know how to write a test. It's further than that. When it comes to failing or getting told no, there was a job that I wanted in tech real bad. I did every single thing possible to make sure that I got that job. Everything looked like it was lining up perfectly for me. I remember I went to the last interview. I came home. I was on cloud nine. I killed it, man. Me and my wife started celebrating. It was like four o'clock in the afternoon. We're jumping up in the kitchen. We're dancing. I'm like, gas station days are over. And I get a phone call. They didn't want me. I have never been so sick in my life. I actually took the next two days off of work. I stayed in bed. They didn't want me. To this day, I don't know why, because I did everything right. I said all the right things. I answered the technical interview perfectly. They just didn't want me. And I wish I knew what I could have done to turn that situation. But the reality is, even if I knew the answer, it wouldn't change the outcome. It was the best thing that never happened to me. And the reason why was in that moment... I believed that this opportunity is giving me everything possible, that it checked off all the boxes. A week and a half later is when I got approached by front door for the first time. And they literally checked off every single thing. Without front door, I doubt I would have been able to grow so much in my career or learned as much. They invested in my mentorship. They, they gave me opportunities to learn, hands-on learning. They gave me like free Coursera access to make sure that I'm learning anything that I want to learn on Coursera. Like they gave me everything. And I would have missed that opportunity if I went with that other one or if they gave it to me. And knowing what I know now, obviously hindsight is twenty twenty. But knowing what I know now, that opportunity never would have compared to what I had at Front Door. And I can say that knowing what Front Door offers and what they offered, but they didn't want me. And I'm so grateful for that no, because if they said yes and I said yes, there's no telling where I'd even be right now in my career. The best thing that never happened to me. I like that a lot. I grew up in the countryside looking for my first developer job because all my friends have gone to university. They all had a clear path to success, or at least it seemed that way as a sort of 18, 19 year old kid, teaching myself to code on Pluralsight and YouTube and things like that. There was no real guarantee of what was to come. And I thought I had to stay in this local area, but there just weren't many jobs. And one time I came across an opportunity I thought would be perfect. I sort of explored it a little bit, but I just felt really defeated. Like there just were no good opportunities here. And eventually that kind of pushed me out my comfort zone to move to London, where again, there were a few more sort of failures along the way. The job I ended up getting, my first tech job, they had a role on their website for some weeks, some months even that I knew was perfect for me. This was the one I was like, wow, I'm the best match for this. And I was like, damn, if I apply and I don't get this, that's going to be really bad. <laughs> and I procrastinated basically. I didn't exactly bail out, but I procrastinated until the point where the job went off the website. And I was like, oh, well, what, what am I going to do? Nothing I can do about it. The job's gone off the website. And I was really lucky because they, they 
they sent me a lifeline in the end. That company posted on Twitter looking for someone to do a freelance job. And when I did it, I was like, right, this is my shot. And I completed the freelance task in record time. I made them a YouTube video showing off all the work, put on my best presentation voice, all that kind of stuff to try and stand out. But anyway, eventually I got the job and that was great. One day you will be in the position you dreamed of being in. And no matter how many wrong turns you took along the way or how many setbacks were there, you realize if not for those twists and turns, you couldn't possibly have ended up where you're meant to be. And that's probably one of the best ways to look at failures. I think something else you said, which is 100% true, is like it's a two-way street. You might interview a company and be like, whoa, these guys are clowns. <laughs> or like, whoa, there's so many red flags. How do they treat people like this? Or oh, they're not passionate about the tech at all. They're just chugging along. You're entitled to an opinion like that. And similarly, you might find that it's not about good or bad or better or worse. It's just about compatibility at the end of the day. And just because one thing is more compatible doesn't mean it's better necessarily. Yeah. One thing that I'll even say is, you know, when it comes to applying to jobs, a lot of juniors do the spray and pray method, right? Like they're just spraying a thousand jobs and they're getting two callbacks. And I'll never ever tell you not to apply to a job. You absolutely should. But what you should be doing is customizing that resume for each application. And the reason why is when you do that, you're exponentially increasing the opportunities that you actually land. And for example, prime example I'll give you is if you have a generic resume that you're giving out, but for example, the job description is saying, hey, we're really looking for a JavaScript developer with experience with these libraries. If you don't highlight your experience with those libraries, how would they ever know that you know that because you're using a generic resume to apply with these generic points, right? I can't tell you how many times people like, I've applied to a thousand jobs, I got two callbacks. That's a 0.02% callback rate, right? Like that's insanely, insanely low. I'm not saying to stop applying to jobs, but the strategy needs to change. You can't apply to that many people and not get callbacks. Like if you're not getting callbacks, you're not doing something right. So customize that resume each time to make sure that you're being very focused. It takes more time. Absolutely. But I guarantee you, you're going to go from a thousand applications for two callbacks to maybe 20 or 30 for a callback. And I think those odds are going to be significantly better for you. But what I'll end up telling you as well is you need to be on LinkedIn and you need to literally put yourself in a position where not only are you having a very strong profile because a strong profile will land you in job searches, but you need to be networking and you need to be talking to developers and not just developers, but hiring managers, recruiters. You can use a feature on LinkedIn where you go through the search and you can filter by posts and search like the companies that you're looking for. And you can actually put in that, that filter term, the companies around you that you're looking for by name. And you can see posts that they're saying hiring JavaScript developers or whatever and message the poster directly. Like saying, hey, I saw that you were looking for a developer for this. I think I'm the perfect candidate for that. I have three reasons why I think you and I need to have a conversation. One, two, and three. And once you do that, guarantee you're going to start getting a lot more callbacks. Either they're going to be like, this person's way off base, or mm. they're going to say, let me check out the profile. They check out your profile. And once it's a strong profile, they're like, you know, I really need to have a conversation with this individual. I think that's a great way of looking at it. And there are so many awesome tips and advice and things you can do on your LinkedIn and your resume to improve it. I know that you have a YouTube series about this, which we'll link in the show notes mm -hmm. for sure. The other thing that I'll even emphasize there is, especially when it comes to like interviewing or conversations with people, one thing that I often find, and it seems so obvious to me, but I guess it's just not obvious to others, is I rarely enter into a conversation without having thought about what they might be asking. What is the one question that we know every single hiring manager is going to ask you at the very beginning of an interview? Tell me about yourself. So many people come up with answers in real time, as opposed to having something prepared that they feel is like a really strong answer that mm. highlights 
a lot of their major, major points in life. You should have a very strong elevator pitch of like 15 to 30 seconds that you use to answer that question. Because guess what? That elevator pitch, number one, will control the narrative of the rest of that interview. Like you can give an answer so strong at the very beginning of that interview that it now dictates the next 45 minutes that you're going to have with that hiring manager. To give you an idea, a hiring manager is basically what I call like a treasure hunter, right? Like they're a fact finder. They don't necessarily know any damn thing about you. Make it easier for them. They ask abstract questions because they're searching for the little nuggets of information, the details. And if you can deliver that elevator pitch, instead of them going down the predetermined cookie cutter set of questions that they had trying to get that information, they now have it. And so like, oh, tell me more. This is something that I used in the beginning. I don't remember exactly the way that I use it because it's been so long, but I would say something along the lines of, um, hey, uh, I'm Danny Thompson. I am extremely passionate about software development, and I am a community leader where I work with meetup communities, and we hold meetups every two weeks, but I'm extremely passionate about Java and Angular technologies. I've recently made an application in Java Angular where it was a city database name where you'd enter the name of a city, and it would tell you whether it was rural and urban based on population density, and we would use Java on the back end to kind of feed in the API and do the analytical thinking, display it on the front end with Angular, and we'd create SQL tables off of that. So now I've given them three of my strongest points, Java, Angular, SQL. So instead of them saying, well, do you know React? That question is not coming up. Do you know C Sharp? That question is not coming up because I've told them what I know. I've given them so much to go off of, just off of those couple of lines that I can now keep them where my strength is. There's so much power, I think, in knowing what the recruiter is looking for and how to lead them there. What do you say, just for fun, to wrap things up? We do some quick fire questions. Sure. What would you prefer, remote, hybrid, or in-person work? I do like in-person, if I'm being completely honest. I do love the aspect of being able to work with my team. But I will also say that now with my roles being remote, I've also enjoyed the extra time with my family. What do you prefer, Flexbox or CSS Grid? Oh, so I do like Flexbox. I tend to use that quite a bit unless I'm designing an entire layout of a page. Then I'll utilize Grid. Otherwise, it's always Flexbox most of the time. Danny, we'd love to get to know you a little bit better. So why don't you tell us your favorite kind of music? I love everything besides country. Like, And that's ironic as I live in the South, but like, I just can't get into it. I've tried so hard. I definitely tend to lean a lot towards hip hop. I do like pop. I like rock. But when it comes to rock, it's usually like classic rock, old school. I really, really like that genre. Do you listen to music while you work and code? Lo-fi all day. So something about lo-fi beats, like it just lets me hit that focus that I need and it helps me block out distractions. But the other thing too is if you don't have something in, little slight noises can kind of distract me. So it's that sound buffer that I need. What is your favorite way to get ready for the day? Water on my face, brush my teeth, get out the door. Like, I mean, that's about it. Like I'm very low maintenance. So just honestly, as long as I can see, you know, the day I've seen another day, it's a good day. And do you sort of just get out of bed and start to work or do you have more of a, do you actually leave the door these days? For those that don't know, normally I start my days around four o'clock in the morning, give or take. The reason why I do that is my family is asleep. So I have no distractions. I have nothing distracting me. It's my personal time, but I do nothing work related. So either learning something that I want to learn or expanding that knowledge in a certain area. But 4 a.m. to about 7 a.m. when they wake up, that's three hours dedicated to me. So usually when I wake up, I may, you know, get the blood pumping a little bit, maybe do like some kind of workaround. But outside of that, it's it's focused on whatever it is that I'm trying to do. Once the family gets up, it's all time dedicated to them. You've been doing a lot of Twitter spaces in the last few months. Are there any or even just one Twitter space that stands out as your favorites? You know, there was one that we did and I almost like broke down. I was tearing up. 
I did one space where literally every single person that came up as a speaker were talking about how they just got a job in tech. And it was because of advice I gave or coding help that I gave. And uh, I have a discord. So we do like a lot of stuff in there. And they were like, you helped me here and this helped me kill the interview. And so every single person just kept coming up. And I was like, y'all, I didn't pay these people to come up. I didn't know this was <laughs> happening. And it was just person after person. I think it was like 12 people in a row. They were like, you literally helped me get a job. And I'm so grateful for that. And for me, I don't charge for any of this. It's completely free. Anything that I do is just to help people. And so to kind of hear that, it, it makes it all worth it. Are there any Twitter accounts you can recommend to people listening if they're looking so to learn many. more about how to break into tech? So many. And you're going to have somebody hate me like, I can't believe you didn't mention me in this list. I know, like, right? It's there's always so many people. One thing that I'll say is there are gems, whether they have 100 followers or 100,000. What matters most is making sure that you resonate with the ideas and that they're not just regurgitating what somebody else said, right? Mm. Why follow the Xerox copy when you can follow the original, right? So I try to find people that share very unique individual ideas. So Angie Jones, phenomenal example. I believe she's the first woman Java champion, if not the first black woman who is a Java champion. She totally kills it. She created an entire free course to teach people Java. There's also um, uh, Catlin Pitt, I think is fantastic. Eddie Venick is an amazing individual. We have uh, Ro Decoder, who's incredible. Annie, uh, Bomb Annie, she's incredible. Oh, she's um, she's cool. all about CSS. Cassandra, she's phenomenal. There's also James Q. Quick. He's a, a big reason why I'm even in tech phenomenal human being. There's coding paths. I believe he's on TikTok. His name is Lawrence Lockhart. Phenomenal human being. Highly, highly recommend Lawrence. Um, there's the entire Commit Your Code community, my Discord channel, which is the link in my Twitter bio. We have over 7,000 developers, super active. There's another group that's called Code Connector. Highly recommend checking them out. They're phenomenal. They have groups all over the country, but phenomenal. There's also amazing GDG leaders, uh, GDG's Google developer groups. Um, there's leaders that literally dedicate time to hosting events in their cities, trying to help people grow and become better. I think the one thing you should be searching for is not who's tweeting, oh, here are the five steps to land a job in tech, but who's really adding value to your timeline. Just to let people know, gave Danny no warning or caution about what questions are coming up. So you just know that you're deeply embedded in the community <laughs> representing people. I appreciate it a lot. And just one last question, bit of fun and a nice way to come full circle. Danny Thompson, web, no, I can't ask you about web two or web three, can I? It's too, it's too contentious. <laughs> we'll just have to call it a day. But Danny, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. No problem. And if I could just say one last thing, you know, of course. for a lot of y'all, I know you're in a position, especially if you're a beginner trying to break, get in the first job in tech. I know like you're doubting yourself and it may seem long or it may seem like everyone's getting a job besides me. Trust me, take your damn time, please. I fried chicken all my life. I'd walk into meetups and my nickname was Popeyes. Like people would call me Popeyes and I'd laugh in the moment, but in reality, it created like this immense amount of imposter syndrome because I was like, I'm not even on the same level as these individuals. Like, why would they ever want to give me a job? And I remember going into interviews and my brain would literally be screaming at me, get out of here. You don't belong here. They don't want to talk to you. This interview room now smells like chicken because of you. They don't like you. They don't need you. They want someone with higher capabilities. They want someone that comes from a degree background. They want someone that comes from a better family. They grew up in a better environment. They know something better, that they bring more value to the conversation. They bring more value to the teams. Get out of here. You don't belong here. I can safely say my imposter syndrome, my doubts, my insecurities, even my haters. I absolutely made it. I'm Danny Thompson. I'm a software engineer and I absolutely love everything that I get to do. And you will too. Danny, thank you so much. Thank you. That was Danny Thompson, a former Fang employee, community leader, and software developer. 
Thank you for listening. Psst. If you made it this far, you might want to subscribe for more helpful and uplifting episodes with recently hired juniors and industry experts alike. You can also tweet me, your host, Alex Booker, and share what lessons you learned from the episode so I can thank you personally for tuning in. My Twitter handle, along with Scrimbers, is in the show notes. See you next week.